Hello and welcome back to The Process. This month I am interviewing Seth Fergolzia. Seth Fergolzia is a multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter who has garnered critical acclaim for his unique blend of avant-garde and folk music. He is the frontman for experimental rock band Doofus, whose 2003 album 131 was hailed by all music as the kind of record that could potentially change a listener's life. If you want to hear Seth's music or check out his art, you can go to the show notes. The link is there. I really enjoyed this conversation and I learned so much from Seth and I know you will too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Seth Fergolzia. All right. So I love to start these conversations with a question about the creative process and what it means to people. But with you, I feel like I want to ask it slightly differently. You're very adept, I feel, from my humble perspective, at mirroring or being in flow with the natural chaos of the universe. Can you talk a little bit about how it feels as you express that in your art? I think I am kind of that as a person in general. Like if I'm in a conversation with one person, I become a different person than if I'm talking to someone else. You know, some people, that's who they are. I guess I am just a mirror in a lot of ways when I'm speaking with people, Hmm. or I try to be. Sometimes I don't relate at all and can't function in a conversation with a lot of people, actually. But um, yeah, I think I'm very reactive. I don't necessarily have thoughts that I feel are my set of thoughts or parameters that I follow. I feel like I make do with what I have. Like that's goes with like, you know, the junk art that I make, I I make stuff out of trash and that's, you know, what I find is what becomes the art. So it's really like, I'm not choosing my medium in that situation. I'm just choosing where I travel to pick up stuff and then whatever I find becomes a piece. And I guess with music, I try to be as unconscious as I possibly can mm. and, you know, achieve the dream state if possible. That's the dream is to be dreaming. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense, though, what you're saying about how you kind of take what you find and you make something from it. Yeah. yeah. I think that makes a lot of I mean, sense. To me, that like I, I can't be like one of those artists who does things that are like super deliberate, although I've tried in the past. I've tried like, I'm going to write a song about this subject. And occasionally it, it does happen and people like what I create, like my song Garbage Night, for example, which also goes with the junk sculpture thing. Yeah, it's it's more I'm a reactor. What's happening around me is what causes the art. Hmm. And I know not everybody works that way. Some people are very deliberate and methodical and I'm more of a big mess. Okay, I want to talk about that, what you were just saying about how you're reacting to your environment So I found this interview with Jeffrey Lewis of you and you talked about darkness and silence. And I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of darkness and silence and however those kind of contribute to your art and music and process. Wow. I don't remember that conversation. I haven't watched that video in years. Yeah, I think it was from 11 years ago. You were talking about at SUNY Purchase how you guys used to sit in a dark room. And it was completely oh, silent. Yes. And you would, ah, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that rings yeah. a bell because it was a game. I made up with a few friends. We called it the silent game. 
this is before everyone had phones and stuff. So um, most of my like note taking was on a cassette recorder. I did a, a lot of messing around with cassettes back in those days. And so I said, how oh, let's play the silent game. And everyone was like, what's that? <laughs> you know, we all got into a room that was like able to be black darkness and turned off all the lights and pressed record on the tape. The idea was that we were supposed to be silent and it did last for quite some time. And then, you know, there'd be a little peep from somebody and then a giggle from somebody else. And then, you know, like shuffling of feet. And eventually those little noises became music and nobody had any instruments on them or anything. So it was all just vocal or whatever is around us. And it ended up being like some of the most inspired improvisations mm-hmm. that I've done with people and most free unhinged like without you know you know you don't have the instruments so it's like atonal a lot of the time but wow we we just would reach so many so many different heights and we ended up that became a habit we did that pretty regularly back in those days that was sort of how doofus started Mm. my my first project doofus not my first project but my earlier project i think a lot came from doing the silent game project uh I wouldn't even call it a project. So it was just friends hanging out right. doing this thing. Huh. Interesting. And I occasionally still try to do it. I, I want to like start doing it regularly, like having like a weekly improvisational thing or bi-weekly or something. Yeah. Just keep putting it off. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a really useful practice. I, I want to start doing it now. <laughs> as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, <laughs> I need to do this. Yeah. I mean, I, I do it by myself too. Yeah. I'll, I'll like go in a small, very reverberant bathroom Ooh. that I like to go into and just turn off the lights and vocalize or whistle or even, you know, play instruments Mm. and stuff. I think the darkness really helps you to stop focusing on your fingers. If you're playing an instrument or, or it just gets, gets you away from conscious thought Mm. more into that dream state I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The dream state is so important. It seems like for creating art, at least for some people, maybe not for others, but Definitely yeah. for me, I feel like it is really, really important. Nice. Um, hmm. When you're playing with other people, or not even just playing, but when you're creating with other people, how do you shed the self-conscious barrier or mask that we put up often as humans? Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you don't I, think about it, which is great. Like... <laughs> I, I don't know if I have that so much these days. I, I feel like I'm yeah, just... Yeah, no, a, that's awesome. I, I, I feel like I barely have enough time and I'm just like, as soon as I'm <laughs> getting to playing, it's it's either I'm like in a musical mood or I'm not, I'm not like nervous mm. or concerned about other people's thoughts mm. about me. I have been me for way too long to like <laughs> stress about it. I love it. No, that's great though. <laughs> that's That's amazing. So many people are like, oh, you're so weird. Uh-huh. What, what, what do you, what, what kind of drugs do you take and all this stuff? And I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm just, I feel very normal. I, I find other people to be very strange. Like I find very normal music to be like, like, how can you do that? Like I, I've, I've actually, you know, it, when I was younger, I, I tried a little bit to write pop uh-huh. music. I had a friend who got signed to Columbia, um, Imani Coppola and her manager was willing to meet mm. with me. So I met with him a couple times. This was around when Doofus recorded our album Revolution. And um, I was writing songs that were 
straight ahead, I guess, like for, for those times that were like pretty straight ahead songs. I was also writing very weird stuff, but I, I brought him my more straight ahead stuff and played him these songs and he's, he would give me instruction like this bridge isn't working this section sucks work on this and stuff like that and so i would like go back to him with these songs and there were a few songs on that album that i did that mm. with like two or three songs that he thought were like potential and um they turned out good i i you know i i don't usually rewrite songs like that and but i was like making them smaller more concise right. and um more tricky or something less flowing and and more like everything is locked in you know like this melody leads right into this chorus this chorus leads right out to this you know it's like no dry spots or no like emptiness to it i i just feel like you know that that's a thing that people try Mm. for and i did try for it at a time and it's not me and i feel like most musicians are not pop musicians and to try to do that is a big waste of your life and and like a terrible like waste of the beautiful art that you might be given because yeah there are some people that have that thing that is so easy to digest for the masses and then there are, are other people who have amazing beauty but it's not meant for billions of people it's meant for a small cluster of people and those people do get enrichment from it and that's like absolutely important Mm -hmm. i I think it's even maybe more important because these small groups of people these are like communities these are tribes they need to have their thing and if they don't then they have to go to the pop thing Mm -hmm. and then everybody's homogenized and it's not satisfying for them probably going to the pop thing yeah it it might you know I, i feel like you know music is one thing that helps give people meaning so if you're going to stuff that doesn't actually resonate with you your meaning of life is going to be also skewed and mm. no i mean honestly like i'm just like tearing up while you're talking about it because it's so true it's so true music really gives people meaning and the fact is like even if only two people get something from your song it is so worth it yeah but our society like tells us that we're not supposed to be satisfied with that as artists like but you need to be satisfied doing it alone. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just like love. You can't fall in love if you're searching for it. You have to be like good in yourself before you can find someone that you'll be good with. Oh, man, so true. <sighs> All right, let's go in the money direction because I really like because this is the process podcast and I'm an artist. Uh-huh. Like I am constantly trying to figure out how people do the money thing. Like, how do you do this? And yeah. I know that when you moved to New York, like to the city, when you first moved there, you promised yourself you wouldn't get a regular job. How have you done this? How have you done this? Seth, tell us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very lucky path, I think. A lot of luck. <laughs> um, but, you know, like when I first moved to the city, I found a basement sort of closet to Perfect. live in. Um, in a house. And yep. the house was really cheap it was like a whole house for 1200 oh my a month, god I think. so i was paying like 150 holy shit i think total so you know and it was with friends uh, like all artists and we would have wild parties and you know the, the silent game thing was happening there too and so cheap living is part of it so i yeah i i did get a job i was 
delivering for a vegan macrobiotic restaurant, bike delivery. So I, I met a lot of cool people. I met Joey Ramone. I don't know. That's like the biggest name that I yeah. met. I, I would deliver to oh. Joey Ramone's apartment. <laughs> he wasn't a very good tipper. <laughs> he was, he was <laughs> but I did give him that album I mentioned earlier, Doofus Revolution. Mm. He was like, oh, thanks. And like, you know, who never, I, I doubt he ever listened to it, but at least I yeah, had it to great. him, you know. But so I was doing that job and I made use of that job by whistling mm. uh, a whistle. Uh, I got really good at this warbling whistle stuff, but it still wasn't satisfying me. And I was getting cold. It was like the rainy season. Winter in New York was pretty cold and wet yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. So it sucked. And so I quit and I said, I'm not going to get another job. I'm supposed to be a musician. I'm supposed to be an artist. This is my mm. job. And I just went on faith, you know, took a leap of faith and have a, a family that would have backed me up if I were in trouble. Obviously, that's a little bit of yeah. privilege. But I, I didn't rely on them. I just went forward and, and you know, ended up moving from there out to this basement of a building that wasn't meant for living with a couple of friends. We shared a room. It was just filled with cockroaches and filth. It was just like... <laughs> horrible living. Um, but it was like directly across the street from this theater that I was putting on my musical mm. in. And we had this like really long hallway and, and a rehearsal room that we could use. It was just like, it was really ideal space for people if they don't care about having cockroaches crawl across your face in the middle oh, of the night. Yeah. And yeah. The restaurant next to us with a pipe to their um, dishwashing sink burst no. and they left it broken for no. weeks and so you know those like columns they have in the middle of new york city buildings where you, it's just like for air yes, to come yeah. in so that thing was oh, filling no. up with their like food water oh, and rotting and you know so it was rough in that spot but it was also like one of my favorite times of my mm. life and we were like really just so focused on the art and we didn't have to pay much money and um making this musical hmm. so you know I was making a little bit of money off of shows back then and dumpstering food. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, you know, I didn't have phone bills and I didn't have health insurance or anything like that. Right. It was just like, I don't even know how, I, I guess I was like emailing my bandmates or something. Like that's how we made the rehearsals happen. I'm not even <laughs> sure how it worked. Cause we had like 20 people at, right. at times. Was days. Big, like, yeah. But then from there I ended up out in Brooklyn and I was actually paying for a, an apartment and I don't know, I guess I was just making more money. Yeah, it must have been shows. And then um, I moved into a, a delivery truck for a while. Really? That sucked. And Yeah. And then I moved from there into a squat in the East Village called Sea Squat. I was living with, I don't know if you've ever heard of a couple punk bands that I was living with. Um, probably the most notable is Leftover Crack mm. and um, Choking Victim, mm. those guys. So, uh, you know, I ended up there and then. Through that, believe it or not, I connected with my record label. Interesting. Uh, Reach Out International Records, Roar, they're called, because one of the guys was best friends with the manager of Bad Brains. Bad Brains was their first signing, and so they signed me, and then I got totally sick, I guess because of this hard life that I was living, mm -hmm. and had to move out of the city. I moved up north to stay with my folks to get better, and then moved back to the city got sick again, moved back up with my wow. folks, then moved to Ithaca, then had a kid, then moved to Rochester. I didn't so, realize you got sick. Um, I, I don't know if I knew that. 
Yeah, yeah. Pretty close to death, actually. Mm. <laughs> I was on tour um, in Europe trying to just tour with this terrible sickness. And, and uh, I went to the hospital and they were like, you got to go home. You're going to die. Wow. <laughs> so I read something about how you stopped listening to music for a couple years. Was that that period or? That was when I first moved to that New was York. When you fir- oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I was making music pretty much only. okay yeah was yeah. that like an intentional thing that you did or was it just it just, was okay. it was intentional i did listen to music at shows like if i was playing a show i'd listen to the other artists yeah. and obviously there's music playing around new york all over the place but uh, i deliberately did not put on any music myself and if i was feeling like music i would make music. so what did that do to your body and your your process it really helped me to find my voice mm. and to give me more comfort with the oddness of my vocal sound and help me to explore more and obviously just spend more time working on stuff you know instead of listening to music for two hours i'd play music for two hours so i'm obviously going to be exploring more and discovering more and building on the musculature and you know broadening range or or strengthening things Mm. you know Wow. Okay. This is a question I've really wanted to ask you. And you mentioned having a kid. How does being a father relate to being an artist? And does it kind of intersect? I mean, young kids are like pure art. They are. Yes. It's so true. Yeah. They're still at the source or just left mm-hmm. the source. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But it's also I don't know, exhausting. And I don't know. I've definitely seen a number of friends stop making art because they have kids Damn, yeah. or, you know, do a lot, lot less mm-hmm. and or like start working a job because they feel like they need to make more money, et cetera. When my first kid was born, she's 16 now. When she was born, I wasn't making much money at all. I was just kind of living, you know, check to check, sort of pretty close to zero. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when her mom got pregnant, I was like, damn, I got to start making money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, this happening made me really want to become more professional and more deliberate with how I was doing the tours and uh, jam pack them full. Like when it, before I had a kid, I would just ride around, do three shows, take three days off, you know, and right. just kind of have it be exploratory, vacation-ish sort of life. But now when I go off on tour, I don't really take days off. Sometimes I'll take a Monday off because Mondays are a little slower. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I just really try to fill every single date so that I can make as much money as I possibly can and have the biggest effect as, as, as I can because I don't really have as much time to be out there. If I didn't have kids, I'd probably be touring half the year. Mm. Jeffrey Lewis, who we just talked about yeah. earlier, I think he does like 180 dates wow. a year. And that's what I've read, you know, like they recommend that you tour that often. And it really has worked for him. He's built up a very big following in the U.S. He already had, you know, U.K. and Europe on lockdown. And he worked and worked and worked. And now he's, you know, bringing people out in the U.S. Mm. too. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, that just that constancy of, of being out there is... You know, that's, I think that's really important for some artists. I, I wish that I could do more. I think I would probably be making a better living and have more fans. It would be great. But uh, I really like having kids and I, I enjoy being a father and, and, and actually being present because a lot of parents are not able to be 
that's one of the advantages of this lifestyle right. is it's, yeah. I have the freedom to move, but I, I also work from home. So <laughs> it's kind of a little bit hard to draw that line yeah. sometimes. Like, when do I go to work? What time is my work time? Yeah, so that is really challenging. If, if there are any parents out there like trying to figure that out, I think it's really important to like make a schedule, figure out how many hours you need to work each week, make that schedule with your partner or whatever. And it really helps to do that. That sounds really helpful. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Patreon earlier. I have a Patreon that I regularly post to that's driving me to create. So I try to put up three things a month minimum. Sometimes it's way more <laughs> like last year when I put out 12 albums. <laughs> we need to talk about the 12 album box set. Um, but yeah, the Patreon is a really interesting thing to talk about. Like, I feel like it kind of goes along with the money thing. Like, do you feel like it's been actually sustainable? Is it a sustainable income? Do you feel like Patreon? I can't live off of it, but it has definitely helped me. I've been doing it since, well, not Patreon itself, but I have been doing subscriptions for 10 years now, um, since 2014, maybe even a little before that. I had a project called 100 Songs, and um, so I wrote 100 songs in four months, and then I produced one per week for a year. And that was my, how I got it all started, and people were interested in that project. That was my own website, and so I switched over to Patreon after that because it was just too hard running my own website, and I don't think people trusted it yeah. as much as like a popularized right. website. And um, yeah, I've been doing it for 10 years. I would say that maybe a, a sixth of my income or something like that has That's come from it good. over the That's past 10 good. years. So when you go on tours and you're not taking many days off except for maybe Monday, how do you take care of yourself? Like, How do you avoid burnout? Well, I mainly go to Europe. That helps a lot. Oh, does it? <laughs> Why? Uh, because they treat you so much better over oh, there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean, it's very unusual to not get a dinner and to, a place to stay. That's mm. They give you like a private room with a bed, typically. There is a rare occasion when I'll have to like find a place to sleep or feed myself, whatever. It's not a big deal. But typically, you get dinner and breakfast. Wow. To stay. So basically, you're just you know, traveling, finding your own lunch and doing your shows. I think it's really important to like get out for a walk. So I try to like get in early each day, do my sound check as early as I can, take a nice, you know, mile or two walk before I do my show. And morning yoga if possible, you know, breathing, doing that kind of centering stuff, getting as much time as you can by yourself, which can be difficult, especially if you're traveling with a band. Yeah, for sure. I do. I really do like traveling solo for that reason because you always get the bed if you're with your band. You, <laughs> you always have get to, the like, bed. There might be like one bed and two couches. Right. And <laughs> whoever's driving gets to get the bed, and I hate driving. So. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, rough. But uh, yeah, honestly, the the touring isn't what does it to me. It's the booking that that does it to me. I, I just get so exhausted by that, and that I've found. I definitely thrive off of like planning it way far in advance. Ah, yes. You know, you plan it like eight months in advance and start sending out emails. Then you might get people being like, what? We don't book that far in advance. <laughs> but if you do start, then you start to like get your map and you can sometimes even pick and choose where you get to play because people aren't booked yet. Uh, the last multi-bird tour, which was right before the pandemic, 
we booked a five week thing. We started eight months in advance and we managed to book that thing in like three weeks. Wow. You know, like that's incredible. We, we just got it all together and we had so many great short trips, like an hour from one place to the next, that sort of thing. Like it was really well routed. And I think that's really important as far as getting good rest is that. And that's another thing that's difficult in the U.S. because the cities are a lot farther apart than in Europe. Right. So you were saying, like, how do you not burn out? Like, I would love to be touring the U.S. I try once in a while and I get like, oh, man, sucks. <laughs> like, I love the nature in this country and I love mm-hmm. to be able to, like, communicate with the people in the country that I live in. But it's just so ragtag like difficult to make things happen if you're kind of unknown like it is i find house shows are the most lucrative usually because they don't have overhead and the people who host house shows will typically try a little harder to get people to come out than just a bar that you're playing at that's like put you in with their listings and the paper and that's it totally Oh, man. Okay, let's talk about this box set that you have put out there. How long has it been since it's been out? I plan on doing it all in one year, but it took a little extra. So I think it may be in like February or March, something like that. I finally finished it. So this is the Painbow 12 album box set. What was the kind of spark for this? Like what made you want to do it? How do you feel now that it's out? Tell me about it. I guess it was like a number of things. Ever since the pandemic, honestly, I've been in a state of like trying to clear out things, get rid of old stuff. I realized I had like tons of old songs, old recordings from random studios and stuff like that. I'd been wanting to clear all that stuff out. And I also had all these old tapes, these like, I don't know if you know what ADAT tapes are. They're like one of the first digital recordings. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. They're like a VHS size tape, but they're digital and it was like one of the first things you could do multi-track digital recording with. So there were DATs, which were like the little tapes. That's just two tracks in stereo. And then ADATs were eight track, but you could also couple them with other eight track machines. So you could do up to 64 or something like that. They would all link in, sync in together. So Doofus had recorded a live show on eight tracks. And then we did overdubs on that live show Ooh. in the studio with another eight tracks. It ended up being, you know, kind of a funny, weird experimental thing that we did. Like, uh, last year was the 25th anniversary of Doofus. And I'd been wanting to do an anniversary with those guys. So it was like all this stuff coming together in my mind. And so I started going through the old Doofus tapes and finding all these solo things. I'm like, oh, shit, there's a lot of solo stuff, too. And, you know, for ages, I've been thinking about songs like Emil. Like, each song is supposed to be like this full, goes everywhere. You know, you got like all the sides and all the the main chorus and Ooh. all this. And, and so I decided to start thinking about them as sides. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Just like taking one idea. And elaborating on that Hmm. instead of trying to fit all the ideas into one song. Hmm. So I started making these really quick, simple songs. And that's what some of the stuff that I wrote at the beginning of last year was. And I just decided to start recording and mixing. And it became a huge project. And it was mainly centered around the Doofus anniversary, the 25th anniversary. I wanted to do a show and I wanted to do this, get out some old stuff. Just to put it in there, like Doofus did an anniversary show in New York. This year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in September. It was great. Really cool. Coming together. People flew in from all over the States. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, really my cool. gosh. 
so yeah, all those factors kind of evolved in my mind, and I was like, yeah, I'll just do a box set. One album a month can't be that hard. <laughs> no, yeah, because they were. It was mostly recorded. It was mostly just like listening and editing and remastering and that sort of thing. But I did record new albums as well. Just really simple, like one is just guitar and voice, one is just loop station and voice. So it's like four newish albums, then four solo albums from the early 2000s, and then four doofus albums from live stuff and studio outtakes. Yeah. Unreleased things, yeah. And then I got it all pressed, too. I got it all pressed on CD, even though people yeah. don't buy CDs. I just wanted to like have something. I got a bunch of them made, and they were like in a little box. I might have one if you want to see it. Yes, I want to see it. Wow! <laughs> That's yeah. gorgeous, Seth. And one of the albums was actually on a label. This one is called Zachly. It's on um, Needle Juice Records. Okay, yeah. So when people want this box set, they can go to your website and it's sold directly on there. Is there any other way to get it? Um, yeah, on my band camp. I don't have it distributed or anything like that. Okay. But yeah, directly from me. Cool. Okay, so I've been like not talking about the art directly just because it's the process, but I do want to talk about your actual artistic and musical work. It seems like repetition is really important for your work. I found this quote that I really liked. My work has always been about rewriting myself, finding my voice in different parameters, expressing utter freedom in all circumstances, because no matter what we try, we never get to absolutely choose what happens to us every day. Life is unpredictable, but I want to achieve this state of self in all circumstances. Perhaps that is a sort of nirvana. Who knows? It's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. You said that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, can you talk a little bit more about this, like, rewriting yourself and kind of coming back to yourself? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're always changing. I just don't like stagnating. I don't like sameness. I, I get really bored. And I feel like life is rich in choices. And yeah, I just think that life is so rich and there's so many opportunities and I want to do everything. I don't mm. want to just be like a one trick pony. I don't want to do the same thing. I don't want to have my style. So many people have their style and, and then they like stick to it. And I guess that actually people like that because they can predict what the art is going to be. But I like to go off on tour and present something new to people. And a lot of the times people will come up to me and say, you know, so many artists that I go out and see, they just play their, their hits or whatever. And then you come through and you always surprise us. And and I like that. And I know it might be in a way shooting myself in the foot, but I, I don't know. I, I just prefer to, to be someone who encourages people to awaken I want to excite people and I want to bring inspiration. And I don't think if I do my old songs from 20 years ago, even though I know they're good songs and I know audiences like them, I don't think doing them every show is going to do anybody any good. Hmm. It's just going to, it might make me some money. (laughs) I I keep mentioning Jeff. He's one of my best friends, Jeff Lewis, who you mentioned the interview with. He's always like saying, you got to just play all your old, songs they're so good and, 
and I, I I do take his advice like a little bit. Like uh-huh. I try to like pepper them into the set, but he's like saying I should be doing, you know, a song or two off of every album, every show. Mm. And that way, you know, people who own that album will at least get that little pleasing familiarity. Right. You know? And I and I get that, but I also, you know, for me it's like always about what I'm working on now. And if I didn't focus on that, I think that it, my creativity might fizzle out or mm. dry up, you know, and and I think that's the important part is like maintain that creativity throughout your life. You don't have like, oh, I, I was good in my youth and now that I'm older, I just play what I wrote back then. No, I, I want to keep writing. I feel like I still have way more to do, way more good things to offer. And I feel like as a songwriter, I, I'm realizing things now that I didn't know when I was younger or realizing things about my voice or my performance and uh, lately, I've been just writing songs where I'm finger picking and singing gently, and for me, that is super satisfying. Yeah. It's really satisfying. It's like so calming and physically feels great on both my hands. Like I'm playing classical a lot of the time, hmm. and my voice just not like over stretching it or screaming. Yeah, and that's kind of who I am now, or it's one of the people, and. Uh, you know, if I was stuck on those old songs, I wouldn't have made these discoveries now. Hmm. You know, so yeah. So it's like you're acknowledging your evolution. You're not just stuck on this one version of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing that I I would hate if I had ever gotten popular. Because mm. that's what people have to do. If you know, if they become really famous, then they have to play the hit. I know. I, I whenever I see one of the big artists play perform I actually feel really sad for them because I'm watching them play all these songs and I'm just imagining like what is going on in their brain right now like are they actually having a good time or are they just yeah I mean it's almost saying like their value is back then right and they have no value now except to imitate their past self oh yeah it's kind of sad (laughs) yeah I noticed, like, I follow you on TikTok, and, like, your TikTok videos are awesome. And you post a lot oh. of videos, like, a lot. The last time I was on TikTok, you were posting, like, four videos a week at least. Yeah, I was kind of in a daily practice of it. Just for a while, I was writing these little skits. That was really satisfying to me. I really liked making those. The skits are great. <laughs> yeah. I just, I kind of burned out on it. I yeah. haven't done any of those in okay. a long time. And then I yeah. started just doing improvised loops for a while, and I was putting up stuff every day, and I was just like, uh why am I working for these people? Okay, so it, it, you did get burnt out after a while. Social media is a whole thing that I feel a lot of feelings about. <laughs> Mostly negative yeah. feelings. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I've been really uh, not participating much lately. Yeah. I think I will go back to making the skits again because I do enjoy that. I think it's important that it offers value to you. And if you're just doing it for them, then it's completely pointless but if you're getting value out of it for yourself then i think it's worth it so you seem to not limit yourself to one medium at all like you're trying everything you said earlier like you want to do everything can you talk about like what do you get out of that how where does that come from i would say the multimedia thing came from i went to a purchase college and um it's a pretty artsy school i don't know how artsy it is now i haven't been there in years but when i was there it was like big melting pot of artists. You know, I lived with art students and so we, we would do like lots of different stuff together, mm. you know, and, and I guess that's kind of where it all started for me. I, 
I was mainly just a musician when I started going to school there. Interesting. Okay, and yeah. um, met a lot of visual artists and started getting into drawing and painting. And then I was part of this weekly improv group with dancers and musicians and we would trade spots and the musicians would go out and dance while the dancers would pick up instruments and we'd all experiment. There's a lot of experimentation going on. And um, when I moved to New York, my visual art actually earned me some money. I worked for a painter, Donald Batchelor. Huh. As his assistant, I was making the backgrounds for his paintings. I'd do like a collage and then he would paint a flower over the collage and then sell it for like 20000 Oh my <laughs> gosh. He was around like with Basquiat and that whole scene. And um, I actually showed peace of mine in a show with uh, Basquiat a couple of Basquiat pieces. I was in a group show and they had some Basquiat pieces and they put mine between the two Basquiats. So it was like the featured spot. What? That's so cool. That's so yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just felt inspired. I, I'm making clothing and I guess I've just always been attracted to creation. And I feel like creating art is the closest you can get to godliness. So when I was at Purchase, some friends and I were out in the forest there and noticed a bunch of pieces of junk around. And we were just hanging out and we just decided to make the junk into a sculpture. And then like nobody was going to this really cool spot. So we all just started like bringing stuff there and making stuff. And we made a, a little puppet theater and a tree fort and metal percussion instrument thing mm. and a bunch of different random sculptures. And it became our little spot, you know, where we would all hang out and do our things. And uh, that got torn down mm. almost immediately after. Like, I spent a really long time working on it. And I'm like, okay, it's finished. Right, this right. is my gift to the school. It was oh. my last summer there. And, and I was like, this is what I'm leaving for the people who come next. And they tore it down oh. right after, like two weeks after I finished. No. And it was kind of painful. But at the same time, it made me realize the process is more important than the result mm. because that was the joy in it. So I was able to recoup some of my positivity about the situation mm. by having that mentality regarding it. Mm. But I had always wanted some property to, to do something similar with that I could control. And so it was like five or six years ago, I saw a piece of land for sale on Craigslist and it was super cheap. And I was like, this can't be real. And, <laughs> and I went, <laughs> I got in touch with the guy and he was like really bad at communicating and it took forever, but I eventually got to go down and check it out. And I was like, okay, yep, I'll buy this. And so Hell I bought yeah. it and it was really filthy and yep. filled with trash. And so I, it's, it's kind of a hobby, but also important to me to maintain. And I do Airbnb on the property too, just to make it a little more worthwhile, I guess. And yeah, the Airbnb has popped up a couple times when I've like looked on Airbnb and I'm like, oh, that's this place. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, people seem to really appreciate being able to go to this place. It's like set back away from the roads. It's super quiet back in there and then just trying to make a little bit of an artistic wonderland for people to experience. I try not to buy new materials. I have used some new lumber and stuff like that for building, but yeah. for the most part, I try to use... You know, just garbage. I love that. Yeah, I almost called it Trash Castle or something <laughs> like that. I was thinking about I have this dream of having it branch out like 
from this starts with like an old trailer that we rebuilt. Okay. Yeah. But I have this idea of like making little tunnels off of the trailer and having all different structures that oh. come off of it that you could crawl through. Oh my to get gosh. To and stuff like that. There's there's a wooden bridge, and there's a little fort made out of sticks that my son and I made. Oh. There's a couple of things we call a garbage monster. There's two garbage monsters. There's a trailer, and there's a tiny house, and then there's some trails and a pond. And mm. sounds amazing. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, I'm just really grateful that you show up in the world as yourself. Like I think that's really important, and and that you create art from yourself. I think that's so important to you. So thank you. And thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you as always. If you want to support the process, you can go to the link in the show notes to become a patron today. And if you want to listen to Seth's music or check out any of his work, you can go to the show notes and his website is right there. See you next month. Sending hugs. The process is presented in partnership with Rochester Groovecast. This podcast is edited by Jessica Liu and Sienna Facciolo, produced by Sienna Facciolo. Our theme music is written and performed by Sienna Facciolo, Chris Palace, and Jordan Rabinowitz, featuring Sally Louise on guitar, mixed by Chris Palace, mastered by Jet Galindo.